Thanks, Greg. All right, we're going to begin. Welcome, greetings from California. Let's begin Sunday school. We are nearing the end of our second quarter of the third year of the Answers Bible curriculum. And our theme for this quarter has been the authority of Jesus. We've seen Jesus' authority displayed in his miracles, in his actions, in his teaching. And today is kind of like a conclusion to that, a summary, a sum up. In some ways, it's kind of like the review day before we hit the review day. We're going to see a lot of the things we've been talking about uh, repeated in some ways in this class, but also with a a concluding sort of emphasis. So that means next week when when we have our review day scheduled, lesson 13, I want to do something a little different this time. I'd like you to send me questions. Do like a more question and answer type day. Questions that can be related to Sunday school, things we've talked about, things we've learned, but also things maybe that we haven't talked about, things, uh, other other aspects of the Gospels, or even things that are not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, or even application, biblical ac- application, how to live the Christian life. I'd like you to send those questions, any and all of those questions, to my email address. You should be getting my emails if you're part of the Calvary uh, email list. Should have my email address there. You can send me those questions before Sunday school next week, so I can prepare an answer and that we can um, talk about it and be edified during uh, Sunday school next week. So again, that can be on anything. I think that'll be a useful time, not only talking about what we've learned, but also talking about some of the things that are that you've been wondering about or that are going on in your lives. We're doing that because this week is kind of like the review week. Next week, I would like to do a question and answer type day. But today we're talking about responding to Jesus. In light of everything we've seen, how must one respond to Jesus? Let's pray before we continue. My God, our God, I pray that you would make your word clear to us, that it would have its perfect effect, that your people would be built up. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most crucial questions in the gospel is probably the most crucial question in the gospel the four Gospels given in the New Testament, really the most crucial question in all of life is who is Jesus? 
Who is Jesus? It's interesting that the structure of the three synoptic gospels literally hinges on that question. If you go to Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you can see that there's a build up to a moment where Jesus asks the disciples that question. And then there's um, not exactly a, a build down, but that that's like the first mini culmination. And then the next one comes at his crucifixion. The Gospels lead up to that question and then lead from it. So that's the question I want to talk about together with you today. Who is Jesus? We're going to look at Mark's version of that question that Jesus asks to his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. This question is the most crucial question. We want to see how Jesus framed it for his disciples, what their response was, and then what Jesus said in addition to that. So Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Mark 8 verses 27 to 38. We'll get the context for where we are. Mark 8. At this point, Jesus has thoroughly demonstrated his authority in his public ministry. The people have seen his miracles. The disciples have seen his miracles. They've, the, the crowds have heard his teaching. Jesus has spoken both plainly and in parables. He's confronted the scribes and Pharisees and dealt with their questions many times. And then we arrive at this moment. Now, each synoptic gospel follows a similar sequence in reporting this. This time where Jesus asks his disciples of who he really is. And just to show you how similar they are. In Luke 9, the sequence of events plays out like this. There's the feeding of 5,000 plus people miraculously. Then Jesus poses the question to his disciples. Who do they say? Who, or who do people say that I am and who do you say I am? He then teaches on the cost of following him. And that's followed by an account of Jesus's transfiguration. That's Luke's account. Matthew's account in Matthew 16 is extremely similar. We have an account of the 4,000 plus people fed miraculously. There's a warning about the teaching of the Pharisees. Then Jesus asked the question, his disciples about his identity. He teaches on the cost of discipleship. And then there's an account of Jesus transfiguration. Now consider Mark's sequence, which begins at the beginning of chapter 8. We again have this report of Jesus miraculously feeding 4,000 plus people. There's a warning about the Pharisees. Then there's a, a healing, a healing of a blind man. Jesus asked the question about his identity. There's a teaching on the cost of discipleship. And then there's account of the transfiguration. So you can see that each gospel writer has included a sequence of events that's extremely similar because they're and they're all important. Uh, it's all important that those things be reported around this question that Jesus asked his disciples. But you may have noticed, just from my quick little rundown, that Mark includes something that neither the other two synoptic gospels do, which is this healing of a blind man. And this is one of the strangest healings in the entire, entire Bible, really, but in the gospels for sure. Look at Luke, um, Mark 8, verse 22. Let's just read this short account, it's a couple of verses, and see why this healing is so strange. Mark 8, verses 22 to 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, 
he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees, walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him home, and he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now thinking about Jesus' other miracles, what's so strange about this one? What happens here that doesn't happen with any of other Jesus' miracles? Well, it is private, though he does do that at other times, too. Not all the time, but this is a private miracle, but that's not the most unique aspect. That it takes two steps. Now, it is true. Not Jesus does heal people in different ways. Sometimes he speaks a word. Sometimes he touches a person. Sometimes he says, or you may remember the one time he makes spittle, puts it on the man's eyes, and then says, go and anoint yourself. So Jesus can do it different ways, but in no other instance is there a partial healing and then a full healing. Here we have the first stage. This man, he can see, but he can't see clearly or correctly. He says men look like trees. And then in the second stage, he sees everything clearly. And this is the only miracle like this. And Mark is the only one who records it. And he records it here. Why the two stages? Was there some sort of divine glitch in the miracle? Like Jesus meant to heal the man all the way and didn't work and he had to redo it? And then why did Mark include this miracle? Why this partial and then full healing of the man's sight? Now, this is not random. This is quite purposeful from Mark and from our Lord. And the context is key for understanding why this miracle is reported here. And the most important aspect of that context is our main passage today. So now let's actually look at that. Mark 8, verses 27 to 38. Follow along with me as I read. Verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father 
with the holy angels. And that's where Jesus' teaching ends. So now that we've read this passage, we want to make basic observations on it, consider interpretation questions, and then conclude with application. This is what we want to do with each section of Scripture. We start with observations. We see that the disciples are on the way to Caesarea Philippi. Where's that? Well, think of the Sea of Galilee, and then go northeast. And that's where you're going to run into this Caesarea Philippi. We're talking about the towns around it. This would be in the Golan Heights today, which I think is not in Israel's borders. It would be in Syria today. That's where the city is, but we're we're looking at the towns around it. On the way, Jesus asks his disciples a question. Who Who do the people say that I am? And we're given three answers. First, John the Baptist. Now, how is it possible that Jesus could be John the Baptist? Aren't those two different people? What were people thinking? Why didn't anyone think that Jesus was John the Baptist? Because at this point, oh, go ahead, Steve. Exactly. At this point, John the Baptist is dead. And for some reason, some people are not thinking about that Jesus was with John the Baptist earlier. Some people didn't know that. And John the Baptist was considered by many to be a prophet. And he was killed by Herod in a, in a tyrannical way. And Herod thought for sure that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. And that's why Herod concluded miraculous powers were at work in Jesus. He's come back supernaturally, and he's got these miraculous powers. Apparently, other people thought the same thing, who didn't know any better. Other people say that Jesus is Elijah. Now, that's not the first time we've encountered this concept of Elijah. What Old Testament scripture prophesied the coming of Elijah? One that we looked at together. Last book of the Old Testament Malachi concludes with a promise from God, I am going to send Elijah before the great day of the Lord. That's Malachi 4, 5. This Elijah is the same as uh, described in Isaiah, the forerunner to Messiah. And we see from the New Testament that the actual fulfillment of Elijah was John the Baptist. But some people thought that Jesus was the Elijah. He would be the forerunner of Messiah. So that's another opinion. But people also say that Jesus is one of the prophets. Notice, not the prophet, not the Deuteronomy prophet, the one that Moses prophesied about, but one of the prophets. And indeed, Jesus does seem to fit the description of one of the Old Testament prophets, does miracles, proclaims God's message, urges the people to repentance. So people say he's just another one of those prophets. Now, were these the only opinions about Jesus' identity in the New Testament? Or even in the Gospels? They're not the only ones. You can probably think of yourselves. What are some other things that people said about Jesus regarding who he was? What's something someone else said about who Jesus was? Yeah, Roy. That's right. (laughs) Jesus actually says, you may remember in our um, lesson last week, they've called the head of the household Beelzebul. They basically say, I'm Satan. I'm the Lord of the demons. Yeah, that was the opinion of the scribes and Pharisees. What else did people say? 
You can think back to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, you are a teacher from God. It's obvious because no one could do the miraculous things that you do unless God was with him. That was from John 3. In John chapter 7, we hear a lot of the the crowds discussing Jesus. They mention different opinions. Some say he's a good man. Some say he's a deceiver of the people. Some say he is the prophet that Moses spoke about. Others even say he is the Christ. And they weren't alone. Many individuals in the Gospels also do also declared Jesus to be Messiah and Christ. John the Baptist testified of that. Nathaniel testified of that when he first saw Jesus. The Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, she recognized Jesus as Messiah. Her whole town did, this town of Samaritans. Often healed people recognize Jesus to be Messiah, especially the blind ones. The blind people who are healed in the, script, in the Gospels who often have the most clear insight into who Jesus is. But the crowd also said that Jesus was demon-possessed. The Pharisees and scribes agreed. They thought he was empowered by Satan. The Sanhedrin considered Jesus to be a revolutionary leader. The scribes and Pharisees, even some of the common people, considered Jesus a blasphemer, one who even considered himself equal with God. And the scribes and Pharisees further said that Jesus was a lawbreaker. He did not keep the Sabbath. So there's a diversity of opinions about Jesus. And it's the same as today, is it not? Ask people who Jesus was or who Jesus is, and you'll get a diversity of opinions along these same lines. Though some would also claim that Jesus never existed. But really the same thing. He's a deceiver. He's a good man. He's a a good teacher. He was someone from God. He was one of the prophets. He was Messiah. But we don't get all those opinions in the disciples' answers. They just mentioned three, which means that these are probably the most popular opinions. And we have this backdrop established with this first question from Jesus. But then he proceeds to another question. He says, but who do you say that I am? And here it's Peter who specifically answers. He asked the disciples before. Now it's Peter stepping forward, probably answering on behalf of the disciples, which he often would do. And Peter says, you are the Christ. And remember, Christ just equals Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. They mean the same thing. Now, that's the correct answer. We've seen by now that Jesus is the Messiah. He has demonstrated his messianic authority. He is from God. He is God. Good job, Peter. You got the right answer. In fact, in Matthew's account of this event, Jesus even says to to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. But he also mentions, Jesus also mentions, this truth was not something you came up with. It was revealed to you from heaven. That's why you're blessed. God revealed this truth to you. We don't have that mentioned here by Mark. In fact, what Mark then mentions next is quite surprising. In verse 30, right after Peter gives the right answer, Jesus instructs his disciples to tell no one about him. What? That doesn't make any sense. If you're the Messiah, don't you want people to know that you're the Messiah? There's then a shift. In the next verse, Mark 8, 31, and each gospel features this shift, each synoptic gospel. This is the first time, right after the disciples confess him to be who he truly is. This is the first time in each of the gospels where Jesus foretells plainly his own suffering, death, and resurrection. And we see that exactly here, right? I'm going to go. I'm going to be rejected by the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests. I'm going to be killed. 
I'm going to be raised on the third day. He says the son of man, but we know by now that's a, that's a title that Jesus uses for himself. It's a messianic title. It also has an allusion to Jesus' divinity. Now, Jesus is not the first time Jesus has mentioned his coming death, but it wasn't so straightforward before. He has alluded to it, saying things like the Son of Man must be lifted up, destroy this temple in three days, I will, I will raise it up. So the, this wasn't the first time Jesus mentioned what was coming, but it's the first time he stated it plainly. And as soon as he does, well, Peter acts. Peter takes his rabbi, takes the Lord aside and rebukes him. That's some gumption. You're going to rebuke the one that you just confessed to be the Messiah? There's a reason he does, though, and we'll see that later on. It's funny how the text, though, our translation says he began to rebuke him. So he started it, but then this action is cut short somewhat quickly. So as Jesus turns around, he sees the other disciples, and then he counter-rebukes Peter. And it's a very strong rebuke from Jesus. Jesus says, first, get behind me. That is, stop opposing me. Get out of the way, you stumbling block. And then he says, Satan, get behind me, Satan. Now, Satan's a word from the Old Testament. That's a Hebrew word meaning adversary or opponent. Whenever it's used in the New Testament, it's always used as a title or a name. That is, for the evil one, the one that we refer to as Satan. But here Jesus calls Peter, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And then there's a reason given for that. You see it in the word for. You say this often in Sunday school, but whenever you see the word for, that's an important transition word. It means that Jesus is about to give a reason for what he just said. What's the reason Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You're thinking what man wants, not what God wants. How so? Well, we'll come back to that in our interpretation step. Just observing right now. Then the follow-up to this rebuke is very purposeful. Jesus then begins to teach, and he draws the crowds back to himself. He was just talking to his disciples, traveling with his disciples, but now he draws the crowds to him again. And he starts with a conditional statement. And much of the teaching of this passage will sound familiar to us because it's similar to what Jesus said um, earlier in his ministry. We saw this last week in Matthew 10. But Jesus first says, if you want to come after me, If you want to be my true disciple, you must be willing to do certain things. What are those things? You got first, deny yourself. This word, this Greek verb uh, translated deny, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament with the idea of refusing to recognize or acknowledge. You refuse to to recognize something or to acknowledge it, either because it's not true or because you just don't recognize it. Same verb used for when Peter denies Jesus. I refuse to recognize my association with him. Jesus says, you've got to deny. You've got to refuse to recognize. You've got to totally give up yourself if you want to be my disciple. And he also says, you must take up your cross. We saw that phrase last time. This is not about bearing burdens in your life. This is about taking up a method, the method of your own execution. Be willing to follow Jesus unto shameful, prolonged, painful death. Luke adds in his version of this account, you must take up your cross daily. It is a continual act. You are constantly giving yourself up for execution every day. And then lastly, you must follow me. 
must go where your Lord goes. You must be like him. You must learn from him, obey him, follow his example. Jesus gives four reasons for doing so and what comes next. And some of them come in the form of questions, but let's look at each one of those reasons. He first says, he seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's interesting. My sake and the gospel. Mark is unique in that expression. But you see, there's a connection between Jesus and what he said. Jesus and the message of salvation he brings. And you can see the way that this sentence is inverted. That helps to draw out the contrast. Also present a certain sort of irony. If you try to save your life, cling to it, hold to it, you're going to lose it. But if you lose it, you actually gain it. And then he asks the question, this is the second reason, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? This is a rhetorical question because the answer should be obvious. There's no profit, even if you gain the whole world, if you have to forfeit your soul. Actually, it's a tragic waste. That's a very misguided exchange because the world, however great and however much you have in it, it's all temporary. But the soul is forever. And where your soul be, where your soul will be is forever. What a terrible exchange to only have the world which passes away and lose your soul. And Jesus says further, and this is a third reason, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? That's also a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Nothing. Man can't give anything to exchange for his soul. There's nothing he can obtain in this world that he can exchange with God. There's no way he can make that exchange later. No amount of money, no goods, no fame, no influence, no whatever. None of it is worthwhile. None of it is useful. Even if you gave the whole world to God, it wouldn't be enough to redeem your soul. After all, the the world belongs to God and everything in it does. So all that you might gain in this life will be worthless for you when you need to have your soul redeemed. Then Jesus brings up one more reason. He says, he who is ashamed of me now, I'm going to be ashamed of him later. Notice that he, the way he phrases this, this further sort of inversion, he was ashamed of me and my words. Just like before, there's an intimate connection between who Jesus is and what he says. He was ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Jesus is talking about the current state of Israel. They were an unbelieving people. They were a sinful people. But is this still true today? Do we live in an adulterous and sinful generation? Of course we did. That is, has been the predominant state of our world. And certainly true in America. Just like the people of Israel, our generation does not like Or take to heart Jesus or his words. You might say, well, I thought a lot of people respect Jesus. They talk about him positively. Well, maybe so. But is it really Jesus who they're talking about? The real Jesus? Are they not contemptuous or ignorant or ashamed of Jesus's words? If so, how could they be respecting Jesus? When Jesus refers to his coming, he says, the future, when Jesus will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. He says, when he comes in the glory of his father. That's an interesting phrase. 
Jesus is saying, I'll have the glory of the Father with me. We know from other scriptures, Jesus indeed has that glory now. He's about to be transfigured, actually, and you'll see his glory unveiled. The disciples see his glory unveiled. Jesus says, I'm going to come with that glory, the same glory as the Father, because he's one with the Father. He's God. It's not displayed now in his first coming, but it will be displayed when he comes again. And he's going to come with his holy angels. Now, what's the function of angels in the scriptures? What do they do? They are messengers. Or we could say more generally, they're servants. And one of the ways that they often serve God, especially in the Old Testament, is that they are warriors. We see angels destroying, striking down God's enemies. But they do whatever God needs them to do. Sometimes they're also worshiping the Lord, but they are servants, they're messengers, they're soldiers. Jesus says, I'm coming with angels. I'm coming again in glory. I'm coming victoriously. And I'm coming in judgment with my angels. So does anyone want to be ashamed of Jesus then when he comes with such power and glory? Of course, again, this is all about to be manifest in a very visual way at Jesus' transfiguration. So there's a reason that that comes next in the near. So we've made our observations in the text, just looking at the different details. Now let's look at the interpretation step. Well, we ask some questions that are not explicitly answered in the passage, but ones that we want to answer based on the details that do exist in the passage. First, this is probably one of the most important questions here. Do Peter and the disciples really understand who Jesus is? What do you think? That's a perfect answer. (laughs) Yes and no. Why would we say the answer is yes? Yeah, Rob. Okay, that's a good explanation, Rob. Yes, most obviously, because they give the correct answer about its identity. You are the Christ. And in other parts of his ministry, they see his power. They see him as a redeemer. They see him as, a, uh, as the king. That's all correct. And Jesus has been leading them up to this moment where they would understand that. And they do. But you're also right to point out, Rob, that they don't fully understand. Because as soon as Jesus mentions the suffering aspect of his ministry, they don't, under, they don't get it. And Peter feels like he has to rebuke Jesus. A suffering and dying Messiah, one who's rejected by his people, that doesn't compute. So Peter feels like he has to go rebuke Jesus. Peter, we don't get the content of his rebuke, but surely it was along the lines of that's not what Messiah is supposed to be. Messiah is going to be one accepted by his people and bring about this new kingdom of prosperity and deliver Israel from its enemies. Remember, some of those things, really those things that Peter says, they are true, but they they neglect other aspects of who Messiah really is. Jesus will destroy as the Messiah, he will destroy the enemies of God and Israel's enemies one day, but that's only after Israel's repentant and saved. And something has to happen for Israel to be changed like that. Jesus has to correct and refine the disciples' thinking about who Messiah is. And not just who Messiah is and what his work consists of, 
but also what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And you can see that the misunderstanding of Messiah directly translates to a misunderstanding of what it means to follow Messiah. Consider the disciples throughout Jesus' ministry. They often get into arguments with each other. And what are they arguing about? Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest disciple of Jesus? It almost sounds comical whenever we hear that. We're like, what's wrong with these people? But think about their understanding of Messiah. Messiah is going to bring about this glorious kingdom. He's going to reign in power. We're all thinking about greatness here. So what about us? Which one of us is the greatest? Which one of us will be the greatest when it comes into Jesus' kingdom? They're only thinking about the exaltation part of Messiah, and therefore they only think about the exaltation part of themselves as followers of Messiah. So Jesus must correct both of these things. He needs to correct their erroneous thinking, complete their thinking about what it, who Messiah is. He's the suffering servant. He's the king who sacrificed himself for his people. He is the God who humbled himself so that he could take on the sins of his people. And those who follow this Messiah, they become like him. They suffer as he suffered for the sake of others, for the sake of God. They become suffering servants as well. Now, why does Jesus wait till now to speak plainly about his, this other aspect of his Messiahship, his coming sacrifice, death, and resurrection? Yes, Dwayne. Right, okay. Um, You said a couple things there, so I'm just going to expand on it a little bit. So, Jesus is bringing the disciples along in stages. For him, for them to understand the work of Messiah, they need to understand a little bit more the nature and character of Messiah. And he's been leading them to a fundamental understanding of that up to this point in his ministry. I am the Messiah, and I have full power and authority. He's demonstrated that again and again. They need to come to the conclusion that he is the Messiah and he has all authority from God. That's an important foundation for Jesus then to explain the other aspect of being Messiah. I am the one who willingly lays down my life for my people. I am the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant. Here's the work I'm going to accomplish. He wanted to make sure they had that first part understood before he began to more fully explain the second part. And this is, this is what teachers do, right? They don't give you everything at once. They, they try and bring you along in stages. Now, hopefully you're, you might now be seeing the connection between what we're talking about and what precedes this passage. Why does that unique miracle appear right before this confession of the disciples and the correction of Jesus? Why this weird two-part healing and then this discussion from Jesus?
Yeah, Danny. Okay, I think you I think you're on to something. And there's a connection between the man who's being healed and the disciples' own understanding. Or you could even say there's a connection between the sight of the man who's healed and the understanding of Messiah's ministry. Because think about this man who was healed. He saw, but he didn't see everything clearly. He didn't see everything fully accurately. And then Jesus heals him a second time, and the man sees everything clearly. So it is with the disciples. Do they see? Well, they do. But they don't see everything clearly. They don't see everything correctly. And Jesus is now beginning to work on that second aspect of their understanding. Very interesting in Mark, there are only two people who are healed of blindness. This one, who's healed in two parts, and Bartimaeus, who's healed right before Jesus enters Jerusalem. By that time, Jesus, the second aspect of Jesus' ministry was much more fully explained. And it's interesting that Bartimaeus, when he's healed, he's healed instantly. And once he's healed, he immediately follows Jesus. So it's like Jesus has in mind, when he heals this first man, he has in mind the disciples, and he uses the man as an object lesson of the disciples' own understanding. Certainly, Peter, and then later Mark, who recorded uh, Peter's teaching, he sees the connection between this man who is healed, this blind man who is healed, and the disciples' own understanding, because there's he includes this miracle right before this confession from Jesus, even though the other gospel writers did not. Mark sees a connection, a symbolic connection between this miracle and the disciples themselves. This informs also why Jesus tells his disciples not to tell anyone about him. Why would that be? Because the disciples do not yet fully understand who Messiah is. They got the basics. They don't have the full story. They don't have a full understanding. If they went around telling people about Messiah now, they would misinform people. They would say Messiah only comes to become Israel's king, make Israel prosperous kingdom, and exalt himself and his followers. And they, they would neglect the, uh, the critical aspect of Jesus' ministry as a sin bearer and the one who secures forgiveness for sins for his people. They couldn't go out and spread the message about Messiah now because they don't yet fully understand. But when, when are they allowed to start telling people about who Jesus is? After his resurrection. When they see everything clearly, then they can tell people about Messiah. It's interesting also in the next passage, the transfiguration. Jesus says similarly, don't tell anybody what you saw until the Son of Man rises from the dead. You don't understand fully yet. (laughs) I can't let you guys go tell people about me until you fully understand. So you can see how all these things are connected. The healing Jesus' words to his disciples, the reason for his rebuke of Peter, and also his reason for his telling no one to tell about him. But why does Jesus call Peter Satan? That seems pretty harsh. 
I don't think any of us would want to be called Satan. Why does he call Peter Satan? Roy, was your hand up? Uh, in a way, I think that's true. Satan, in a way, speaks through Peter. I don't think we should say that Satan indwelt Peter, or that Jesus was claiming that. I, I'm not sure if that's what you're what you're uh, alluding to, but certainly there's an idea that Peter is acting in the stead of Satan, or acting in the same way as Satan. Certainly, we're not saying that Jesus was not saying that Peter and Satan were the same person, uh, or I would say that neither that Satan indwelt Peter. We're familiar with it, and we consider the New Testament as a whole, and even Jesus' own teaching in the Gospels. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I won't lose any of them. I'm the good shepherd. I protect the sheep. I lay my life down for the sheep. We understand that those who are in God are protected even from uh, Satan and the demons. They cannot be controlled. They cannot be... um, taken over by them doesn't mean we can't be tempted but certainly not going to be possessed or indwelt by satan or the demons but in a way peter is not possessed but taking the place of satan here in a metaphorical way you know we sometimes use other names in the bible to bring forth a metaphor If we say, dare to be a Daniel, we're not really saying that you should change your name to Daniel or that you should adopt everything that the biblical Daniel did, but we're referring to what was characteristic of Daniel ought to be characteristic of you. You should be courageous for God. Or sometimes people might refer to, oh, he he was the Judas of the group. We're not saying that the man's name was Judas, but what? He did what characterized Judas. Judas was characterized by betrayal. And so anyone who's called a Judas is being characterized as a betrayer. Same thing for the name Satan here. What characterizes, in a fundamental way, Satan? Yeah, Danny. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're you're already tying in what Jesus says to Peter in part of his rebuke. Satan is fundamentally opposed to God. He hates God. He hates God's people. He totally opposes God's purposes. He hates God's glory. And he's only concerned about his own glory, his own purposes. And Jesus, by calling Peter Satan, says, that's what you're doing right now, Peter. You are showing fundamental opposition to God and a hatred of God's purposes and even a hatred of God's glory. That's why Jesus says, as Danny was, was Danny was explaining, you don't have in mind God's interests, but man's. That's just like Satan. Now, Peter is somewhat unwitting in his acting like Satan. He, he doesn't know that he's opposing God's plans so um so vigorously, but it is a terribly evil thing that Peter is doing here. There's no greater opposition to God than to oppose the redemption of his people. To oppose the gospel itself is the work of Satan. 
And that's what Peter's doing here. Could you imagine if Peter succeeded in his rebuke, that he stopped Jesus from doing the work called to him from the Father? That would be the worst thing that could ever happen, not only for mankind, but for Jesus himself being disobedient to the Father. Peter did not realize the extent of his evil. And Jesus says, I have to point out to you just how much like Satan you are being right now. You cannot oppose God's perfect plan, especially because you're only thinking about what you want. You're only thinking according to man. That's why Jesus calls him Satan. Now, we can see why Jesus is teaching about self-denial follows, right? Because it has everything to do with how Peter was going astray. Verse 34 and following, Jesus explains, what does a true disciple of Messiah do? He denies himself. Peter, you're thinking only of yourself right now. If you want to be my true follower, you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of my words. Even my words about suffering. The Messiah's own suffering and his followers' suffering. But are people ashamed of Jesus' words today? They assuredly are. Both those inside the church and outside the church. There are people who reject and repudiate Jesus' words. They ignore Jesus' words. They twist Jesus' words. They add to Jesus' words or they take away from Jesus' words. Or they refuse to share Jesus' words with others. These are all ways of being ashamed of Jesus' words. We can see that this teaching that follows is intimately connected with the disciples' own experience and Jesus' rebuke of Peter. One, uh, actually, just uh, two other questions here. When Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of you when I come in the glory of my Father. Is Jesus referring to someone who is saved or someone who is unsaved? The person who is ashamed of Jesus and his words. Who's he talking about? From just verse 38 alone, it might not be entirely clear, but I think the context helps us understand that Jesus is referring to someone who is not a true disciple, someone who is ultimately unsaved. Because look back earlier in in that section, verse 34, he says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. Follow me. You can't do that if you're ashamed of Jesus. And we can think back to Matthew 10. And also in 2 Timothy, where we get a slightly different version of the phrase, but Jesus says, whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my father. Or 2 Timothy words in this way, if we deny him, he will deny us. To be denied by God means I don't know you. I don't have fellowship with you. You're not one of my own. So this phrase of being ashamed of Messiah and his words, that describes an unbeliever. And so to be ash- for Jesus to be ashamed of you when he comes means he does not own you. I'm sorry, that one doesn't belong to me. Now, is it possible for believers to be ashamed of Jesus? It is, temporarily. But that's not ultimately characteristic of a believer. And again, we can, we can point to Peter himself directly as someone who, who became ashamed of Jesus and even denied him outright. But nonetheless, repented, persevered, ultimately was not ashamed of Jesus. So 
Jesus is referring to fundamental eternal destiny when it comes to, are you ashamed of Jesus and are you ashamed of his words? So we could summarize the motivation that Jesus is giving in this last part of the passage. Why should you be motivated to give up everything for Jesus? Because he is the only way to gain eternal life and be spared God's judgment. There's no other way. Gain the whole world profits you nothing. There's nothing you can give in exchange for your soul. The only one who can save you is Jesus Christ. And the only way that you can truly be his disciple is if you give up yourself. Give up everything. Follow him even to the point of death. And he won't be ashamed of you when he comes, but he'll own you. He'll say, I, I'm his Lord. I give him life. He will not come under judgment. So let's summarize what we've seen in the passage as we move towards application. There's much confusion at, at the time of Jesus's ministry as to who Jesus actually was. Crowds, Pharisees, all saying different things. But the disciples correctly answer the most critical question about Jesus. He is the Messiah of God. But even their understanding was incomplete and erroneous. And Jesus had to correct their preconceptions of who Messiah was. So they actually believed in the real Messiah, not just who they thought Jesus was, but who Jesus actually was. And that was a very important thing. They wouldn't even be allowed to tell others about Messiah until they understood correctly. This correction evolved. The true work of Messiah, the aspect of his suffering and death for sin, and the true cost of discipleship. Now, what does this mean for us? How does the Holy Spirit want to instruct us today personally? From this passage, I thought of some questions just to get us thinking in terms of application. But we have to answer the same question that the disciples opposed here. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do each one of you say that Jesus is? You may confess like the disciples. He is Messiah. He is Lord. He is the Son of God. That's good. I hope you all confess that. But do you acknowledge the full claims of Jesus? Do you understand him to all the necessary aspects of his fundamental character and nature? He is God, one with the Father, but distinct. He is the only salvation. That's been our theme verse, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the judge of all sin and unbelief. He is the only possible sacrifice for sin. He's the only one who can save you. There's no amount of good works that you can do. Do you acknowledge the full claims of Jesus the Messiah? And in light of that, have you become his true follower? One of the things the Gospels make so clear is that it's very possible, very easy to be a false follower of Jesus. Remember how Jesus described it? There are Two ways. One is wide that leads to destruction. The other is narrow. Why is it so wide? Because so many people travel it. I remember reading one, I think, commentator, preacher from the past who mentioned that it's so wide that all kinds of people can be on it. You can have the totally godless person alongside the very religious person who nonetheless does not actually believe in Jesus does not fully acknowledge who Jesus is. And they're both on the road to destruction. 
They're not true followers. Are you a true follower? Have you denied yourself? Have you taken up your cross? Have you followed him? Do you follow him now? Do you seek your life here? Or have you given it up for the life to come? For the sake of Jesus and the gospel? Are you waiting for the final unveil? The final judgment of God in which he owns his true people and rejects those who rejected him. Of course, we're not just thinking about ourselves, though. We're also thinking about other people. What we're talking about here is fundamental questions relating to evangelism and the gospel. So how might we respond to somebody who says, Jesus was just a good moral teacher? What should we say in response? Uh, Craig, is that your hand? It is erroneous. Uh, what else can we say? Yeah, we take him to the scriptures. Do you actually know what Jesus said? You say he's a good moral teacher. He claimed to be God. You know, C.S. Lewis is famous for his explanation of the trilemma. If a good teacher claims to be God, he's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's telling the truth. He is the Lord. So it's logically inconsistent to say that Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. And the, the scriptures don't declare Jesus to be merely a good teacher. So we want to show them what Jesus actually said and point out the logical inconsistency and also show them their need. You must believe in this Jesus. You must become his true follower if you want to be saved. How might we respond to someone who says, Jesus is one of many ways to get into heaven? Yes, Steve. Yeah, very good. Again, we want to point them to the actual words of Jesus. Have you heard what Jesus said? He said he was the only way. He demonstrated he was the only way. By the way, it's logically inconsistent for every way to be uh, valid into getting to heaven because the ways contradict each other. Islam says it's the only way. Jesus, according to the scripture, says he's the only way. They can't all be true. For them to all be true, you have to alter each one of them. You have to say, oh, this part here, that wasn't true. That's logically inconsistent. And again, we want to point out to people, no, Jesus is who you need. There's no other way. How might we respond to somebody who says, yes, you need to believe in Jesus to be saved, but Jesus was a created being who only became God. How might we respond to that? Yeah, Roy. Again, yeah, essentially, Roy, we point him to the scriptures. That's not what the scriptures say. And if you're not going to fall into the deadly error of believing in a different Jesus, you must acknowledge who Jesus actually claimed and demonstrated himself to be. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. He was the word who was in the beginning with God and was God. All things were created by him. And without him, nothing was created that has been created. It is possible to believe in a Jesus that's not the real Jesus and to believe in a God who's not the real God. 
It is true. The scriptures say there's no other name by which or no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. But it doesn't mean that if you just name any old Jesus that you believe in Jesus. You have to believe in the Jesus who is. Because that, that wasn't that the, the danger that does, the disciples were in? That they might believe in a Messiah of their own making? And of course, that was the fundamental error of the crowds at Jesus' time. Oh, there are plenty of people who acknowledge Jesus to be the Messiah. But he wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. And therefore, they repudiated him. You have to believe in the Jesus who is. And something like Jesus' deity is fundamental to him. Do you have to believe everything correct about the scriptures and Jesus in order to be saved? Well, no. Plenty of people get saved in the scriptures who don't know everything. But you want to get the fundamentals about Jesus right, lest you believe in a different Jesus and you're not covered by the true Jesus. How might we respond to someone who says he believes in Jesus, but he lives just like anybody else in the world? Yeah, Roy. And where do we get that idea from, Roy? Exactly. Again, we go to Jesus' teaching. Obedience is a true um, demonstration of belief. And that's what Jesus said, even in this passage. If you want to be my follower, if you want to be a disciple, you have to do these things. If you don't do these things, you're not my disciple. Don't say you believe in Jesus and then deny the rest of what he called you to do. Which is deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. Again, we take him to Jesus. We want to take people to Jesus' words. We want to show them that true belief results in self-denial and change. Not that you do that before you become saved. No, you can't work your way into heaven. You're not even able to do these things. But as you believe in Jesus, this is the fruit. When you believe, you say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. By your power, you have to make me able. Because I know what you've called your disciples to do. We want to warn people about being false followers. All right, that's it for this week. Any quick questions before we end today? Yeah, Rob. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Would it ever be appropriate to call somebody Satan who's opposing uh, opposing the Lord? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I want to echo Steve's words. I, I wouldn't be comfortable. We do know that on the one hand, even as we've said before in class, those who oppose the work of the Lord, especially false teachers, they do get some pretty some pretty harsh words. So. There may be some instances where somebody is so obviously opposing opposing the Lord where it would be appropriate to call that person Satan. But it would need to be very, very blatant, and you would want to be very sober-minded if you were to ever use that term. We don't see uh, anybody else using that term. Nobody else in the Bible calls somebody Satan. It is true that the apostles, they had some pretty, some pretty interesting sayings to characterize false teachers and religious hypocrites. So again, there, there is a principle there, but we want, to be, we want to be pretty careful, pretty sober-minded about that. In, in some ways, though, what's useful about some of the things that are said about false teachers, and even here where Jesus um, compares Peter to Satan, is to show the seriousness of, of what kind of wrong is happening. That's why, that's why that language comes up when we speak against false teachers. 
you have to know and people have to know just how evil and opposed to God is what you are doing. So I'm not saying that we never say those things, but we do want to be pretty sober about it. So I could, to answer your question again, Ron, I could conceive of a situation, but I would want to be really careful about that. Now, remember, next week is question and answer day. So please send me emails with questions you've had or questions that, that you now have or just topics that you'd maybe like to hear more about or things going on in your life that uh, you would want advice about. You don't have to be super personal, but uh, just answering things about uh, the Christian life. Please send me those questions so that next week we have plenty to talk about. If you give it to me beforehand, I can come up with a better answer by preparing for it a little bit. I might have time for some questions that only come up next Sunday, but it's better if I have it beforehand to make sure we have enough and to make sure I can give a good answer. I'm not guaranteeing I'll have an answer. Uh, I'm not guaranteeing that I might not call on somebody else to answer that question from the congregation, but I think it'll be a good time of uh, exploring what the scripture says on different things. So send me those questions. Uh, let me close in prayer and, uh, and I'll see you guys next week. Let me pray. Oh God. You've demonstrated your authority in the scriptures. You've shown that you are God, Jesus, that you are the Messiah, that you are the only salvation. And you've shown what it, you've shown the need that, that you had to die on behalf of your people to save them. Without you, God, without your work, Lord Jesus, there's no way we could have been saved. There's no way we could have been righteous enough. There's no amount of good works we could ever do. But you provided it all by taking our sin on yourself, paying for it totally, and then giving your righteousness to all those who believe in you. And we thank you for that incredible kindness, that wonderful mercy. We thank you for your salvation. God, I pray that we would tell others about it. Lord, that we would answer genuinely, not just from the head, but from the heart, who you really are. And that we would help others to do the same. They would see that you are Lord and God, that they would bow the knee, be saved, and be given eternal life. I pray that you bless the people at Calvary today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, see you next week.